You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, just our usual notes to remind you of. Make sure you're following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. We just surpassed 1,000 followers on Instagram, so we certainly appreciate you guys following us there. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can go to YouTube.com and just search Hazard Ground Podcast in the search bar. That's the best way to find us on YouTube. Again, just go Go to the search bar at youtube.com, type in Hazard Ground Podcast. You'll get all of our episodes there as well. Want to remind you guys about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate that right back to some of the charities and organizations that have been featured here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Please keep the listener emails coming to producer at hazardground.com. We love hearing from you guys. We love guest suggestions, so continue to send them to us. And a lot of people who write in, you know, are wondering if they have to have this unique story or some sort of, you know, major tale. They don't, guys. We want to tell every story or as many stories as we can. Everybody has a story to tell, and that's the purpose of this podcast, to be able to tell the stories that not many people have heard because they are also very, very important. Finally, don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Those help grow the audience. They actually help us gain more followers. So if you get a chance, leave a rating and a review. It doesn't have to be a long one. Give us as many stars as you think we deserve. Again, we welcome all the feedback from you guys, but those ratings and reviews are so, so important to helping grow the Hazard Ground community. Certainly appreciate you guys being part of this every single week and being part of this show. Let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired U.S. Army First Sergeant. He had 23 years total in the service and retired in 2012. His lone deployment was to Desert Storm back in 1990, and he is the founder of the United Heroes League, a nonprofit organization that works directly with children of military families involving youth sports. He is Shane Hudella, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Shane, welcome, brother. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, very interesting background. Uh, for hockey fans out there, this is going to be one that they absolutely love, uh, as you have started your own hockey league and, and all the benefits going to uh, military veterans. And so I think it's a, a fantastic cause and certainly uh, one that sports fans can get behind easily. But let's start back at the beginning, Shane. Tell us how and why you got in the Army. Sure. So uh, late 1980s, getting ready to graduate high school. And um, my dad was a Marine, served in the Marine Corps in the Korean War. And Grandpa was in the Army in World War II. And uh, I, I was part of a very big family. So coming out of high school, I had aspirations to go to college and I uh, wanted to carry on the military tradition in the family and, and thought, hey, I'll do my part, serve in the Army, and if I get a little bit of help with college from it, uh, boy, even better. Now, at the time, in the late 80s, I mean, it was the most peaceful time for quite some time since post-Vietnam, right? We had about 15 years of, of relative peace, uh, all things considered. Did the idea of combat ever enter your mind? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, I, I knew enough that uh, 
wars happen, that, that conflict has happened from the beginning of time and it will be around until the end of time. And, um, he, you know, had familiarity with the Vietnam era and, um, when, when I was looking at entering military service, knew that, um, that was potentially part of the deal and, and was okay with that. Um, but you're right. It, it was an era where, um, it, you know, just kind of coming out of the cold war and, uh, seemed like relatively low risk to be able to join the military and try and get an education knocked out quick. And then if I enjoyed it, I, I could stick around. And, um, if I didn't, then, Hey, I'd have some help with my degree and, and be on my way. All right. So to that end, when you got in, did you know what you wanted to do? I mean, obviously you had the family background, but did you guys have conversations about what you wanted to do? Yeah. As far as on the military side? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my dad was also a police officer, um, for his adult career. He, uh, was a deputy for about 30 years and I had aspirations of going into law enforcement as well. Uh, so it made sense to join the army as a MP initially and, um, figured that would be some great background for me. Um, uh, if I did end up pursuing a career in law enforcement. So joined in, in December of 1988 as an MP with the 257th MP company uh, here in Minnesota. So you joined the Guard, and you go through all of the basic training and everything else, and you enter into the Guard. And what is your first kind of year-like experience-wise? Sure. So um, uh joined the Guard and and. December and um, finished out the school year, uh, graduated, went off and did my basic training in um, AIDT and and got into the MP unit here in Minnesota. And uh, it was a little different time back then. Yeah. Um, late 80s, it was just kind of the transition of um, the National Guard being primarily a, a state force, um, or at the very least, um, they hadn't been utilized at the federal level, um, very often, uh, for, for quite a while since the Vietnam era, anyhow. Um, and it was a time when, um, boy, the good old boy, he'd still have a beer in the field or, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't the, you still had the the three beer lunch rule back then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it was, it was just transitioning from being, um, I guess what I, I would say is a, a little bit more of a relaxed force versus the active component. And, and, uh, they were just, um, making that transition to be more like the active component. Um, so it was unique, you know, first year as I was doing my training and getting integrated into the army, um, it, it was great. You, you know, you're 19 years old and starting to spread your wings as a, as a young man. And, um, you get to go off and, uh, the cliche of getting to see the world and do things that most people don't get to do. So I fell in love with it pretty quickly, um, was still pretty, focused on trying to pursue a degree as well and um, had enrolled in uh, college up here. And it, it was interesting in, in uh, 1990, um, I'll never forget the December 4th, I got a phone call uh, from my squad leader saying, hey, we're, we're being mobilized for this thing called Desert Storm. Uh, you've got 48 hours to um, 
get your affairs in order um, in your life because you have to report on December 6th to the armory so that we can mobilize. Um, so it was a, a, a pretty short window. And, um, I, you know, I remember December 6th was my birthday, so I, I spent my 20th birthday reporting for um, my first active duty assignment um, and, and first deployment, I, I guess. Um, so it was a pretty unique time. We we did, uh, uh, I think it was four or five days at our home station, National Guard Armory. And yeah. and then the irony for me is they sent us over to Fort McCoy, Wisconsin um, uh, in late December to do a, a three-week train-up to go fight in the desert. Um, well, the, the snow was, uh, about waist deep over at Fort McCoy at the time. Uh, it was, it was cold as shit. And, um, every day we, we scratched our heads. Hey, this is where the army's, tr- uh, training us in a couple of weeks to, um, go deploy to the desert. So it, it was, um, kind of a unique experience. Well, just to back up, you know, I always joke around cause I'm, I'm still in the guard now. I did active duty first, but everybody knows I'm, I'm still in the garden. I always joke around about the guard. The great thing about it is you get to date the army, not marry it, right? Like, you know, it, it, yeah. it, it's it, it's enough just to hang on, but, you know, you don't have, have to really be committed to it 24-7. So the guard brings you that sort of benefit. Uh, but when you deploy it, it, it is a marriage. It's an arranged marriage, and, and, and you're there for it for an extended period of time. So um, that happens to you very quickly in the guard. And, uh, you know, the bell rings, and we're, and we're all there to answer it. So you start going through all this train-up. Uh, what are you being told as far as what your mission is? Do you even know? Uh, yeah, I, you know, the, um, military police at the time, and, and I, I think it's still the same, had, uh, four primary missions. You did, um, POW operations, you did battlefield circulation and control, um, physical security is the third, and, and then, uh, law enforcement mission where you police your own soldiers. Um, so as, as we were getting, um, prepped to go over, um, the word was is that we would do likely be doing um, uh, at least three of those missions or be tasked out to do um, possibly all four of those missions during our time there um, and and we did it, it was uh, it was funny i 'll never forget we um, landed uh, in Saudi Arabia the first night I uh, got in in the middle of the night uh, they pushed us into um, uh, some high-rise buildings, and, and if I remember right, it was Cobar Towers that we went to um, that first night. Uh, I'm in E3 at the time. We we bed down in this shelled-out high-rise and fall asleep, and about two hours later, my uh, my squad leader's waking me up. He's in Mach 4. There's shit blowing up outside. The scuds are being intercepted by Patriots, and um, things got very real, very fast, um, for us over there. But, uh, during the time on the ground, we, we did do a lot of, um, POW operations, everything from running the POW camp to, um, uh, being christened Greyhound bus drivers in a matter of hours and, and driving up following the infantry and, uh, armor to pick up the, the waves of Iraqis that were surrendering and then transporting them back. So, um, we did that. We did police our own soldiers at the end before we, um, 
came back and then uh, had the pleasure of sitting in the middle of absolutely nowhere for 30 days, um, living in a <laughs> bunker with, with an M60 guarding a gigantic pile of uh, 155 shells. So um, I, I think we did end up doing all four of our NP missions um, for the six months that we were there. To that end, you know, you said you woke up to the uh, to the explosions and the Scud missiles and everything else. Um, you know, what other sort of action did you see while you were there, if any? Yeah, you, you know, it wasn't um, wasn't ever in in the big firefight. Um, you know, I, I feel a little weird being on the show, knowing you guys have had some real warriors on there from the special forces community and and some guys that have gone through. Um, some pretty serious combat and um, for me it, it wasn't that way our our big encounter was um, uh, scud missile attacks and and we had that instance on the first night um, it, it was funny uh, a couple days later so our first mission when we got on the ground was to um, provide security at the air base that uh, that the air force was running all their sorties out of um, and, uh, the next night on the job, uh, so to speak, um, we're running a checkpoint, me and, and an E5 and, um, E5's in the bunker on the 60 and, and of course me as the E3 and the guy standing outside checking vehicles, um, uh, coming in and, and we got scudded and, uh, I, I still have this picture etched in my mind of, of standing out there, they're, there weren't any vehicles coming to the checkpoint at the time. Um, and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, there's fireworks. Uh, and, and the next thing I know, my, uh, E five's yelling at me, get in the bunker, stupid. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was scuds coming in and Patriots going up and, um, they were kind of intercepting these things, uh, relatively close, but, um, just the, the imagery and, and the surrealness of, um, standing out, side there and and um they, you know you're you're coming from a few weeks earlier you were in uh waist deep snow at fort mccoy wisconsin and and now you're in the desert and, and it kind of looks like the fourth of july but there's a very real threat there with um uh the scud missiles so uh that was it that, that was our, our big thing um you know we had a couple of weird things with with some of the pow's um that we managed and, and we did have um some contingents of national guard and or or of uh republican guard um uh that we managed over there as POWs that that were a little dicey but no big firefights for me well to that end i mean did you ever feel like your life was in danger at any point yeah i i mean you know looking back on even after you know kind of coming out of um the scud attacks um we we had probably 30 to 45 days where um scud attacks were pretty frequent and um they were close enough to see them and, and close enough to uh shake the buildings and in the ground that you were on when um those things happened but uh kind of a funny story probably the the scaredest I ever was um uh during during that particular deployment um was the first time that an A ten buzzed our POW compound as part of a PSYOPs operation. Because uh, they didn't tell us uh, poor saps that were working the the towers or or the main gate, um, and, and if you've ever had an A10 um, 
come over you at, at treetop level, it uh, sounds like the world's going to end. Um, now, my life certainly wasn't in danger there, but um, I, I definitely needed a, a new pair of uh, BDU or DCU bottoms at that point <laughs> when that thing uh, came screaming over because it, it definitely sounded like the world was ending. How long are you there for, Desert Storm? Uh, six months. So it, it was, um, uh, I think it was just a couple days under six months, but we ended up meeting uh, veterans eligibility just with DMOB and, and stuff like that. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, because it ended so quickly. You guys, I guess, were they telling you at the beginning, like, it's going to be a year long? Did you know an end date? Or were you kind of surprised when they said, hey, we're going home? Yeah, it was um, it was amazing that it was done so fast, right? And and always a little bit, little bit of guilt now, and in, in that um, uh, a lot of other folks I served with have gone on deployments of a, a year or more. We even had um, a historic deployment for the Minnesota National Guard where um, that particular brigade combat team was gone for, um, I think it was 23 months, 22 months, something like that. Um, so we, we got over there, obviously the, the, the war was over pretty quick. Um, and then, uh, we, we kind of had a moving target. Um, originally it, it looked like we were going to, um, be heading home in, in March and, and then it was April, um, and then it was early May, and, and then I, I think we ended up coming home right at the end of May. So um, I think we got over there a couple of days before um, the first of the year, um, January of, of 91, and uh, I think we came home kind of towards the end of, um, uh, end of May in, in 91. When you get back, do you think that – that would be your only deployment. Like, I mean, are you just are you, do you not know what's next? Were you somebody who said, "Okay, I, I, I'm going to get out now"? Do you feel like you wanted to stay in longer? I mean, what are you thinking and feeling after that deployment? Yeah, you, you know, coming home, um, there there was such a resurgence of patriotism in America. Um, you know, every every soldier, airman, marine, sailor coming home got the parade, right, and and. Um, and there was just this mass patriotic movement in America that I felt like, um, and, and rightfully so. We went over there, we kicked ass, we got done, and, and we came home. Um, so it, by the by the time that I was um, coming home and, and reintegrating back and into late 1991, um, at, at that point I knew, man, I I love this army stuff. It's it's fun. You get to do things that people don't get to do you feel good about um uh defending our nation and and being someone that can answer the call of duty um to keep people safe for all of those people that can't uh join or or aren't able to serve um so by late 91 i I knew i was going to be in um for the long haul and and knew hey if, if we have to uh, deploy again. That's the way it goes. Um, now saying that, a, you know, my exposure to deployments at that point, um, had been, geez, they're, they're six months and we kick ass right away and, and, uh, you know, come home and geez, they must all be like that. 
Um, so, uh, a, you know, obviously it doesn't work like that. A lot of um, deployments are pretty extended time, and we've been kind of bogged down in, in the Middle East for a while now doing mm-hmm. great things. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I knew it was going to be a career for me. Um, Where were you on 9-11? Uh, 9-11, so 9-11, I was sitting at, um, Camp Ripley, Minnesota. Um, uh, we were up there for, uh, um, senior leaders, uh, conference and, um, we, we were actually sitting in uh, a bunch of, uh, of us NCOs sitting in a big auditorium because our, uh, state adjutant general was, um, coming in to, uh, do a smile and wave welcome to this, uh, training exercise thing. Um, and at that time, you know, we didn't, we didn't have smartphones. We, um, uh, were just there on duty waiting for the adjutant general. And, um, I'll never forget this either. He, he walked in, in, in his flight suit, um, which we thought was, uh, weird. Uh, he typically didn't see the tag and, in a combat uniform in Minnesota. Um, so he walked in in his flight suit, came up to the podium and, and said, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if, uh, if you're aware, but America's under attack right now. Um, you're going to need to return to your duty stations. And he turned around and walked off the podium and out the door and, uh, instantly, um, everyone kind of got up as soon as the adjutant general left and, um, hustled out to the atrium where they had some TVs and, and flipped on and, and we all kind of watched it um, unfold for a bit before we scurried back to our duty stations. So you didn't actually see anything on TV happening? Oh, we did. Yeah, okay. we, we turned right. on. They they had um, cable um, at at this um, uh, facility that, we're, that we were at on um, on uh, Camp Ripley and, and so um, we saw that the planes had hit the towers and, um, we're kind of watching in, in, um, uh, uh, amazement at what was unfolding in, in front of us live on TV. Okay. And so at that point, did you think that you guys were going to end up going somewhere again? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, absolutely. Everyone in, in, uh, the group, all these, um, NCOs were like, well, let's, it's time to head back, pack our shit, because we're going to be um, heading somewhere super, super soon. And why didn't you? Uh, you know, at that time, um, so I, I was in the artillery at that point. Um, in, uh, in the early mid-90s, um, the National Guard and Army Reserve kind of reorganized some of um, uh, our reserve forces in the United States, and they had came to our unit and said, Hey, you, you guys are going to be artillery now. Um, and if you want to stay an MP, we'll move you to somewhere else in the state or you can stay here and learn artillery. So, um, I had stuck around and, and thought artillery sounded fun. Um, but it, it was, it was funny for, um, uh, for 10 years after, 9-11, um, my unit kept getting missed. Um, you know, a couple of years went by right after 9-11 and, and other units were, um, being taken for deployment rotations and, and ours wasn't. Um, and, uh, I continued to advance in, in rank. So I, I, um, I was a, uh, E8 at, at our cannon battery, um, got, 
or no, I was an E7. I got selected for E8, but I had to move to uh, Devardi or the division artillery uh, with the promotion. So I took the promotion to E8, moved to Devardi. A couple months later, the unit that I was in got tapped for deployment. Um, so I was at Devardi for a couple of years. Um, uh, did my thing as, as the first sergeant there. Um, ended up getting offered a, an AGR gig that I accepted. Uh, left Devardi, uh, took the AGR gig, and a couple months later, Devardi got tapped to deploy. So pretty soon I was known as the kiss of death if I was leaving your unit. Um, <laughs> you, you could plan on deployment. Um, so it, it was just unique how, how it worked out. Um, it, you know, a lot of great friends and, and great buddies and comrades I served with that uh, had, did a number of deployments and uh, from the Minnesota Guard, two, three, four deployments from uh, 9-11 on, and, and for some reason they just kept missing me. Did you ever want to individually just go and, and look for an individual assignment to go on? Yeah, you, you, you know, um, uh, yes and no. You, you know, you're a part of that team, and and you want to go and um, do your thing and and contribute. And, um, and a lot of times, I'll tell people it's it's like the pro athlete, right? If the the pro football player wants to go to the Super Bowl and the pro hockey player wants to go to the Stanley Cup Finals and um, for military uh, folks, um, there's a high percentage of them that look at uh, the deployment as almost like a championship. Hey, this is this is what I've trained for for six, eight, or ten years, or this is why I joined to do my part to um, go and and serve and answer the call of duty. Um, and, and so you know we we all have that that feeling when, when you wear the uniform that um, I, I want to go and do my part and uh, still for me um, uh, uh, you know some young kids at home it's it's that struggle of geez I, I you know I want to go and, and do this and still have a lot of anger over 9-11 um, but also the you know how how is my wife and family going to, um, are they going to be okay while I'm gone? Um, so, uh, it was a little tricky to transition to, um, to the AGR program here in, in Minnesota. Um, I got asked to, to join our recruiting and retention battalion and, and work with young recruits in uh, what's called the recruit sustainment program or, or RSP. Um, and, and I really enjoyed, I got into that and, and really enjoyed that assignment of, um, helping get young soldiers ready to go to basic training in, in AIT. Um, so yes and no, he, he, you know, the, the thought came and went and, um, uh, as I was getting older, you get to the point of, Hey, um, I'll, I'll certainly go a fast, but um, you know, deployed once already, and, and check that box, and enjoy what I'm doing right now for the army as well. Well, again, and you know, for those listening, as you mentioned before, you know, some people have different sort of uh, histories and career paths that, uh, on the surface, may look like they do more than the other, but that's never the measure, right? Because uh, everybody has their piece of the pie, and. They, one part of the pie isn't more important than the other. The only way you can make 100% is that if everybody does their part of the pie. 
And so from that standpoint, you know, uh, your obviously your service is no less, you know, useful or the people that you trained with and mentored, you know, the ones that went on to combat from units that you left all were better because you were there. And so from that standpoint, even though you're not on the ground with them, you, you, you hope and you think and you feel that those units were better prepared because of the, of the mark that you left on them. Yeah, and, and that um, it, it was actually a huge passion of mine. I, I was a, a, a major advocate for realistic training, um, and, and that was um, a big difference that I saw from when I joined the National Guard in, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, a lot of things were simulated, and, and uh, the, the training, in, in my mind, um, wasn't realistic enough coming home from Desert Storm um, saying, geez, you know, there's got to be ways that, that we can train our, our soldiers better and more realistically. And um, that was one of the things during my career that um, I, I was very proud of is, is that I always tried to bring incredibly realistic training to the table. And, and just a quick example of that is, um, uh, have you ever seen the, the model rockets that you can buy, um, where you, you build the rocket and you put the solid fuel cell in it and mm -hmm. put it on the little metal plate and shoot it up. Um, so in my mind, I, I figured out, well, geez, let's, let's build a, an RPG out of four inch, um, plastic tubing and shoot those at each other. Um, uh, like RPGs training, uh, or, or when we're doing convoy ops and things like that. And, um, uh, the first time we used it, um, uh, by then I was an E6 or E7 and, and we were doing some convoy training. Uh, and I'll never forget the, the commander and the commander's driver, uh, in the E3 were the lead vehicle and, um, they came around a curve, hit our, our blocked ambush. Um, and so the E3 got out to try and move the log across the, uh, road, um, and uh, we opened up with these RPGs on them with these model rockets, and, and that poor kid uh, turned white as a ghost and ran about four different directions um, at, at once. And um, doing the AAR on it, uh, you know, talking to the kid, geez, private, why did, uh, you know, hey, why'd you um, uh, get out of the vehicle and, and uh, you know, what happened when he saw that RPG come in. Um, and he admitted, I, I just froze. I, I had no idea what to do, um, for it. And it, it kind of brought me back to that time when I was at the checkpoint, um, uh, and the scud attack came in and I kind of just froze watching the fireworks. And luckily I had an MCO to tell me to get in the bunker. Um, but, to me, that trying to bring very realistic training like that into it, um, hopefully better prepared a lot of um, the soldiers that were in my charge to, to go and um, deploy post 9-11. And um, hopefully when it came time for them to uh, face a, a real threat downrange, that, um, that that time they wouldn't freeze, that they would know what to do. All right. So uh, after 23 years, how do you know it's time to retire? Well, um, I'll be very honest, the military started to get uh, a, a little different. Um, you know, um, still have, it's still the greatest force in, in the world and, and still um, 
uh, have the greatest war fighters on earth. Um, but I, I saw, um, a, a big shift in, in um, kind of what was important on the training side for uh, at least the force that I was in. And um, I, there, there was more and more emphasis on um, spending time training your soldiers on, on things that were important, um, like sexual assault awareness and, and diversity and, and different things that um, are very meaningful and, and need to get done. Um, but the amount of time that we were spending on these um, uh, was was really distract or, or it wasn't leaving us enough time to train our soldiers to um, fight and win on the battlefield. And, and so there was just a, a, a big challenge, I thought, in um, what the priorities were for, um, f- for our training time um, uh, and, and just decided, you know, I'm, I'm getting to be a bit of a dinosaur here and this charity thing's growing like good um, uh, or growing like crazy and, and just thought this, this might be the time for me to open a slot for somebody else to advance and um you know it was the right decision at the time i think we gave um uh the next e7 a great opportunity to move up and um i took a chance on uh leaving and putting full-time energy uh back in 2012 into the foundation it, it really helped us grow to um uh, become a, a nationwide org that's been able to give back millions now to military families. Well, and let's get to that because it was called originally Defending the Blue Line. And uh, for those listening, that's not a uh, comment on police. Blue, when you say blue line, it is a, a term in hockey for those who, you know, listen, Shane, uh, as a kid who grew up playing hockey for 15 years, it's, it's sad that not a lot of people know about it, but the people listening worldwide who don't know what a blue line is, well, it's it's a a hockey term. So I uh, just wanted to clear that up given everything that's going on in the world. But that said, defending the blue line turned into the United Heroes League. Um, just kind of give me the idea of why you started with it. I mean, obviously, if you're a Minnesota kid, you played a lot of hockey, right? I mean, it's just it, it's part of like church on Sundays, if you will, uh, in, in that part of the country. So but how did the whole thing come about? Yeah, it's uh, hockey is a lifestyle in, in Minnesota. Um and so, uh, you know, I was, I was AGR at, at the time, um, in the Minnesota guard. And, uh, I just happened to run into a, a couple of pro hockey players that were playing for the Minnesota wild at the time. Um, unbeknownst to me, one of them had uh, military history in his family. His, uh, grandfather had served in world war two and his great grandfather was killed in action in, in world war one. Um, so there's a guy by the name of Brent Burns that played for the Minnesota Wild at the time, and, and another guy by the name of Derek Bugard. Uh, but I, I happened to meet him by chance and, and was in uniform, and um, they, they kind of cornered me and, and said, hey, we we want to give back to the troops. We're, we're huge advocates of... Um, of the military and, and we want to use our status as a professional athlete to, um, help military families with hockey. What's out there that, that we can, um, do for, for organizations or what can we do for military families? So, um, I, I 
went back and said, Hey, I'll, I'll find something, um, and, and let you know, uh, well, there wasn't anything out there. So literally that night I, I just kind of decided, well, I'm, I'm going to start a military nonprofit to help military families with hockey. And I'll get these two knuckleheads, that, uh, uh, play pro hockey to help out in some capacity. So it was just kind of a spur of the moment decision overnight, just to decide, Hey, I, you know, if something good comes out of this and I can help some of our soldiers here locally in Minnesota, uh, that'll be great. It'll be a win. So it starts with a simple idea, but you know, nothing is ever that easy. How do you get the thing off the ground? Yeah. You know, I, I think I've just, uh, been lucky to be honest with you. Um, it's, it's a lot of hard work and, and a lot of hours and things like that too. But, um, we had some lucky breaks and, and, um, early on we had those pro athletes that, um, wanted to help. And we started hosting families, um, in a box suite at, at the hockey arena in town to watch them. And then, um, pretty soon we got some equipment donated and, and we're turning around and giving that to families. And, um, so really the first two years, it, it was pretty low key. Um, uh, 2008, 2010, um, it, you know, we sent some families to game and, and helped out with equipment and, uh, paid a, a few grants to help, um, those E4s, E5s help pay for the high cost of hockey. Um, and, and then 2010, things kind of started to, to shift. Um, I, I got a call one day, um, and I was actually just coming off the ice myself. I was in the locker room after skating, um, and it was a producer from NBC Nightly News uh, saying, Hey, we heard about your organization. Um, we'd like to feature it on NBC nightly news. Um, and my first reaction was you're joking, right? Who's pranking me? <laughs> um, I, I figured it was one of my soldiers that set up some prank or, or something, but, um, sure enough, we, we ended up, uh, being featured in, in prime time with, um, Brian Williams on NBC nightly news. And, uh, from there, things really kind of started to take off and, uh, 2011, 2012 timeframe, um, we had been, uh, notified that, uh, someone in, in DC or at the White House had seen that clip about us and they wanted us to, um, submit to be considered for the Joining Forces Community Challenge, um, which was a White House initiative um, for military nonprofits. And uh, so we ended up um, sending in our, our application to be considered for it, and somehow we ended up winning it. So we were the uh, 2012 Joining Forces Community Challenge um, nonprofit of the year selected as the best new military nonprofit in America. Um, so it was cool to go to the white house and, and accept that award, but kind of the cooler thing coming out of that, um, uh, as we started to, uh, meet and make some connections in, in DC, uh, we got an invite from the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff to, uh, bring one of our pro athletes with the chairman and, and go, um, visit the troops all over the Middle East for 10 days during the holidays. So, um, that, that was kind of my, my two week cool guy period in, in life, um, flying on Air Force Two and, 
traveling with the chairman and, and these celebrities to go visit the troops. And it was um, uh, very surreal to, to be with that group looking out on the troops um, uh, as they were doing entertainment or signing autographs and things and, and just kind of dawns on you, geez, you know, I used to be on that other side of the handshake line here for a long time. Um, but it was an amazing experience. Um, a, you know, I, I've, I've done probably, um, more cool things with the military, um, since I've retired and in, in the capacity of United Heroes League than I did in 23 and some change years actually in the army. Um, so on that trip, we got to, uh, land on an aircraft carrier and this, uh, crappy little prop plane called a cod um uh we flew out with the chairman and these celebrities on on this little prop plane and landed on an aircraft carrier just just like the jets do um visit with the sailors on uh the uh the ship and and then we left and got shot off with a catapult just like the jets do and it was funny because the uh the pilot knew I was a military guy and, and he knew I wasn't big on, uh, flying. Um, and, and he told me, don't worry, top, if, if it goes bad, going off the catapult will be pieces in the ocean before you even know what's going on. So, um, that, that, that was very reassuring. Um, but that trip was amazing. We went to Kyrgyzstan, we went to Bahrain, we went to, um, Ireland, we landed on the aircraft carrier. Um, we went, um, we went up into Afghanistan and and hit um, the two big bases, and then we went fob hopping in, in Black Cocks for a couple of days to all these little remote outposts and um, had a very sobering moment on those. We, we landed um, one morning, um, early in the morning, on, on a pretty remote outpost in Afghanistan, and um, they had us go in and, and eat breakfast with the troops and um so i sat down next to a, a pair of e3s and and had one of the pro hockey players with us and um it, you know you start to chit chat and it's it's kind of a dog and pony show in in a way but um talking to the c3 you looked like he had just been put through the ringer um uh it, you know i could tell something was wrong and um it, you know he finally told me hey i you know sorry i'm not super social this morning we were out uh half the night picking up body parts from one of our squads that got hit um so pretty tough times and the you know you're out there and you hear something like that and i had just retired uh it makes you want to put the uniform back on again and pick up a rifle and um fall back in line to um go even the score so to speak against those um folks that are doing that to our men and women but um, amazing trip and, and kind of coming out of that trip in, in uh, late 2012 over the holidays, we, we were beginning to evolve more and more into a national program. Where is the program now and sort of what's next? So uh, we're still based in, in my hometown, tiny little Hastings, Minnesota. Um, uh, we run our entire operation um, out of our facility here. Um, we've got a couple million dollars worth of sports equipment on hand that uh, comes in and out every day to military families. Um, we're in 24 markets around the United States, so um, 
places like D.C., Southern California, New York. Um, we do a lot around Fort Bragg, um, different markets all around the U.S. We have teams of about uh, 10 or 12 um, regional volunteers and a regional program manager. That um, It's usually military folks that volunteer their time during, uh, during their non-duty hours to help advance our mission and, and distribute benefits. Um, but today we're doing uh, 2020. We'll do three to five million dollars in, in charitable giving to military families um, across the country and really around the world, um, and continue to grow. We're trying to strategically grow the other sports. So, uh, 2016, we decided to rebrand and change our name from Defending the Blue Line, uh, which was very hockey specific. Uh, to become United Heroes League and, and opened up um, a plethora of other sports. So we can help families now with soccer and basketball and um, football and, and golf and different things. Um, so we continue to grow those programs and, um, hey, you know, pretty excited for our future. We're, we're 10 years in now and um, growing like crazy. Uh, so, uh, it's going to be a, a great legacy to, to leave, and uh, very confident the organization will live in perpetuity to help military families bridge the gap um, for the high cost of youth sports. So let me ask you: You've been at this for ten years. Um, do you? And you mentioned legacy. Do you feel like more of your legacy is the United Heroes League as opposed to the actual service? You know, I, I think so. Um, I, I'm super proud and grateful to have been able to wear a uniform um, for as long as I did. Um, I, you know, love serving my country, and we'll see if one of my four boys continues that um, uh, part of our family tradition. Um, but I, I think uh, the organization, United Heroes League, um, has been able to have such tremendous impact on um on our force as a whole and and especially their families um i i i would say that i i've been more proud of um the accomplishments that that we've had here and i'll give you an example um uh there's a special forces soldier in uh southern california that um we were lucky to be able to help out we we had gotten uh an equipment um request for for him and a grant request and so we shipped off um shipped off some goaltender equipment for his kid and, and paid a grant to help keep him in hockey uh well a few months later three or four months later i, I get a very nice thank you letter um i i didn't know it i had no idea at the time but um wade when they put that request in was actually recovering he had been shot nine times while he was rescuing a, a hostage in afghanistan um and he lived to tell about it his, his body armor picked up six of the rounds and um his body got the other three rounds and his his hand and um a, a couple of them in his arm um but uh it, it's it's been you know to be thanked by somebody like that that's um holding a bronze star and a purple heart and um it, you know 
paid a pretty heavy price for um, going over and doing the things that we need to do um, has been incredibly rewarding. And, and those families stay in our program for a long time. And in fact, that soldier's son um, recently signed a contract with um, a, a minor league hockey team, an A3 team uh, out in California. And, and I think we just shared it on our social media here in the last week. Um, his son Liam that, that we were able to help young when Wade was going through a, a tough recovery period um, flourished and, and uh, that family their thing to rally around during recovery was um, hockey and, and very fortunate and very proud that we could help make that possible. Just out of curiosity do your kids participate in the United Heroes League? Yeah, I've got uh, four boys. They've all been goaltenders, um, and, and I'm I'm too poor, dude, to, to be able to afford four goaltenders. So um, they've been lucky to um, be able to have the opportunity to to um, use equipment. And um, to be honest, they've been very spoiled, and that they've gotten to meet a lot of the pro athletes um, that are ambassadors for us. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been great and, and great for them. I've, I've got, uh, two of them are graduated now and two of them are, are still in school. So uh, well, a couple more years and we'll run out of goalies. Right. I, I asked that because I'm just curious if your kids or any of the other youth kids who are part of the league, you know, ask you about the military and, and tell you that they want to sign up The kids from your league when they get old enough, end up, you know, go, going into the military at all. Yeah, it it happens all the time. Um, it, you know, we've had um, uh, kids in our program. We've been around long enough now to where um, some of those kids that were ten years old and getting a pair of skates from us are are standing in a formation now um, in the Army or Marine Corps or other service. So it's um, uh, pretty cool to to see that come full circle. I mean, it must be. You know, it, some of those kids might have even deployed again already, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's um yeah, it's just you you, you guys know what the military's like and in the brotherhood and how close knit it is and and how many of those families um where their kids continue that legacy and um just very proud to have been a part of it. Well, look, it's it's an amazing foundation and you talk about the growth as you mentioned in 40 states. Uh it's just it's it's unreal that an organization continues to to grow like that. And it's serving all the right people, you know, military youth and uh, those families that, uh, you know, need the help. And, and I mean, I wonder how many gold star families do you know that you're dealing with as far as kids who are, who have lost a parent? Yeah, we've, we've got um, uh, probably about a dozen gold star families um, in our program. Um, and, and it's, um, it's been an incredible journey with those folks to hear from um, the surviving parent what a difference we've made by being able to um, keep their kids engaged in in sports and and keep them in front of positive role models and and coaches for those sports. Um, A lot of times those coaches kind of fill a gap for that parent that was lost um uh just from a role model standpoint or or somebody positive to have in their life to um help them make good choices and and help them heal and and um move on and and be productive people so um we've got some stories like that as well and uh boy those are always the the first folks that we want to try and help 
again, just an amazing foundation, uh, an amazing organization. And, uh, you know, leadership at the top is where everything starts from, Shane. And you're you're a huge, huge part of that. And, you know, as we talked about with legacies, you know, I, I think just from listening to you again, you know, part of your, your legacy as a soldier, it was left on those who, uh, after your time in Desert Storm, went on to go fight in the global war on terror. And now you're leaving a whole new legacy with the youth across America who are taking part in the United Heroes League. And, uh, you know, not only that, again, enlisting in the military or, or signing up to do ROTC in college, whatever it may be. And uh, from that standpoint, it's, uh, you know, the reach just continues to grow. Like, are you ever amazed at the strength and the arm and the reach that your your program has? Yeah, I've, I never in my wildest dreams thought it would grow this big. Um, and uh, when it started creeping outside of Minnesota, um, uh, tried to start being smart about, hey, well, what happens if we continue to grow and, and what does it look like on a national level? And, um, it, you know, it's just been funny, some of the, some of the things over the years. Um, one of my favorite stories is... Uh, Two years ago, I, I got a, a phone call from a SF buddy that was at some little crap hole outpost on a mountain in Afghanistan and um, called me on a satellite phone and said, hey, uh, dude, like every time we try and leave the wire here, the, the locals and the kids are, are throwing rocks at our at us when whenever we try and get off this outpost. Um, do you have any soccer balls or anything you can send so we can try and make the peace with um, this local tribe? Wow. So, uh, so we packed up a dozen soccer balls and, and some nets and shipped them off to uh, this little mountaintop in Afghanistan and um, got a call six or eight weeks later from that soldier saying, hey, dude, just wanted to um, say thanks. The local kids are, are playing soccer now and nobody's throwing rocks at us anymore. So um, thanks for sending that stuff over. Um, so just some pretty cool stories over the years and yeah. some of the giving that we do to forward deployed troops is, is pretty cool. And, um, you know, we're up to 120 some pro or celebrity ambassadors. Now we've got some country singers too, but, um, I, I think we're onto something. I, I think it's a cool idea. I think everybody knows how important sports are for, youth development and I, I think a lot of folks understand how expensive it is too and and kind of the pay scales that um uh the military folks are on so hopefully it continues to grow and uh someday there's there's five million military kids out there in america and someday it'd be pretty cool if, if we could um help every one of them so that's that's kind of my goal with the organization and um, it'll take some big growth to get there, but uh, keep chugging along. Well, Shane, again, uh, just an incredible foundation. Uh, amazing to see the, the power that you've had over people. In certain cases, you've never even met. You know, I mean, it's just uh, when I say power over them, it's just the power to reach them and, and affect their lives and change their lives for, for in a positive way. And I think that that is incredible. So, again, it's it's the United Heroes League, unitedheroesleague.org, correct? Yep, you got it. And so check them out on the web, unitedheroesleague.org, and certainly uh, get your kids involved if they're in your state. And if not, just, you know, hit Shane up personally. He'll get it, you know, he'll get, he'll get it to your state soon enough, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you, you got it. 
Well, I'll certainly love talking with you. Uh, again, an amazing story and, and so proud of all the work that you've done in your post-military life to, to enrich the lives of military families and kids all over America. So uh, certainly thank you for all that. And certainly Shane Hudella, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Hey, you bet. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.